And at what point do you make that decision about it is better to obey God than man? When we think of that, we talked about that some two weeks ago. I want us to just pause for a moment and think of the conflict in the Apostle Paul as he now writes those words as led by the Holy Spirit of God and then moves into verse 8 where we'll be tonight. When Paul was Saul, he was a man who was devout to his belief. He believed completely in the Old Testament law. He believed in the power of God and he believed in the rule and law of those in religious authority. Now, certainly, he would have had a place in which those, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, would have butted heads with the legal authorities from Rome. But he absolutely recognized the authority of the law of the Jewish leadership. So much so that he got letters from the Jewish leadership to go about his life of persecuting those that were in this way called Christianity. For those that were following this Jesus Christ who he did not believe in. So Paul, in being submissive to the authorities that were over him, the Jewish leadership, carried out their will, carried out the commandment that was given to him in letters, the commandment that he believed was the will of God, in taking Christians and even Stephen and sentencing him to death. Pulling people out of their houses, bringing them before the mock trials, and seeing them persecuted and murdered because of their faith. So when Paul writes, let everyone be in subjection to those that are higher authority. Here was a man who had done that and done what he thought was right, but was absolutely wrong. Then on the feet of that, he writes, verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, the first part of that verse, to owe no man anything, is a very commonly used verse. Many would say that part of that verse, owe no man anything, means that as a believer you should never borrow money. Well, in the context of this passage, I don't believe that's what it's referring to specifically, though there is certainly a principle there. But if you look at the whole of Scripture, I don't believe that for believers it is wrong to borrow and use money for different purposes. Uh, I believe that when you look in Scripture, there are some principles about loaning money and getting an exorbitant interest rate that Scripture comes against. Uh, there is in loaning money to someone who is in need when you could just help them by giving it. So there are some principles there in Scripture that we see. I think when you come to the first part of verse 8, to owe no man anything, that there is a principle of indebtedness there. That when you use money that is not your own, it should be for situations and for items that are appreciating assets or that are items that you have a greater loan-to-value ratio uh, than what the debt is on that item. So uh, I think there is a tendency in society today, especially among car purchases, to buy a car, to make a payment on that car, and then two, three, four years later to trade that car in, to then have a negative balance on that car and to finance that into the next car. So you now owe more on the next car than what the car is worth. And, and people tend to live in that cycle. If we call it the American government. But anyway, you, you just keep borrowing more than you have 
and you end up indebted. And I think there's a danger in that. Whereas when you buy a house, your house is an appreciating asset. The value of the home tends to keep going up as you pay down. And so you're not in debt. You can sell that item and get out from underneath the debt of it. So I think that principle exists here. Though that's certainly not the, the emphasis of the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law for this Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly in the day, not in rioting and in drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Paul is now coming to a place where he wants to encourage the believers. He has talked to them. He is, he's gone through so many things. We looked at last week. So this is how gospel receivers, those who have trusted in Christ, live. They live in submission to government. And when he comes to this passage, he's now motivating individuals to have a motivational aspect behind much of what he has already taught them. Look, love without dissimulation. This is how believers are to react to the world, to each other. This is how they react to government. But he has to motivate people to help with this. Now, we see that enthusiasm is easier than obedience. It's easy to get people excited about something. It's hard to keep them to continue in that obedience and doing it. So that when we take this passage and we look at it, Paul's looking to those in Rome and he's trying to encourage them in this. But he is establishing some enthusiasm about what they are being asked to do. When you do this, especially in the last part of the chapter, you keep in mind eternity and there's an encouraging aspect. The night is spent. The day is at hand. So we have an excitement about doing the work of the Lord as we read through this passage. The people receiving it certainly would have gotten word from Paul and been excited about it. The enthusiasm was there. Now they had to continue in that enthusiasm. It's kind of like a New Year's commitment. You know, the first of the year, you're all excited about what you're going to try and accomplish that year. And then about seven days into it, that excitement starts to wane pretty hard. And by this point in the year, you have no clue what your New Year's commitments were a year ago. Kara talked the other day, and I asked my kids, I said, you know what we need to do? My parents are going to be coming to visit here at some point. And I said, when they come up, we need to have Pops, that's my dad, fix you guys some liver and onions. How many of you ever ate liver and onions growing up? Let me see, be honest here. Okay, there's a few of you. I remember eating it as a kid, and so I remember it, but I'm pretty glad I haven't had it in a very long, long time. But I feel like my kids really ought to experience this, just because why not? And my wife goes, yeah, I made a New Year's commitment years ago to never eat that. Sorry, I can't do it. So sometimes we have New Year's commitments, and the enthusiasm begins to wane on that commitment. Sometimes when we get a command of scripture, we hear it in a message, we get a letter like Paul has given here, there's an excitement about it and we recognize this is what I need to do. But that obedience begins to trail off. It is much easier 
to commend love than to live by it. It's easy to say, look, owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. It's easy to say we ought to love everybody. It's harder when you have to start dealing with people. The truth of the matter is, people are fairly unlovable. And you know how you know that to be true? Because you are one. And if you're honest with yourself, you're fairly unlovable at times. When we live with sinners and sin nature exists, there is in sinners and in that sin nature, there is a difficulty in loving that sinner. And when we get excited, okay, I'm going to go love everybody. And then it's easy to love lovable people. It's easy to love the people you like. And then you come into contact with somebody you don't like. And then it's a lot harder to love them. And it's easy to commend love, but it's hard to live by it. And living by the love of Scripture, going into 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to look a little bit more at what loving another is. That's a high request. That's a high call. Because loving becomes sacrificial. Loving becomes putting yourself down and lifting them up. And when I'm going to live by love and I'm going to owe no man anything but to love them. And then you go into verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. So in loving them, I'm going to do everything I can to do right by them. That can become exhausting. It's why James says, look, be not weary in well-doing. We, or excuse me, Paul says, be not weary in well-doing. We will one day reap if we faint not. When I go about my life and I carry the weight of trying to be good all the time, it can get to be a little hard. Paul was fueled inside by a weight that tied back to those days when he had submitted to the religious leaders but where he had brought other people to a place of their own death because of a wrong belief that he had. And that fuel inside of him was the fire that kept him at a place to where he recognized his need for love. For us, oftentimes, if you grow up in church, you get saved as a child, and when you get saved early on in life, you don't carry around the baggage of many who get saved later in life. And for that, I am so grateful. But you lose a little bit of that fire that keeps you in lockstep with the need to love everyone the way that you should. So we recognize that enthusiasm is easier than obedience. It's much easier to commend love than to live by it. But obedience is at the heart of faithful Christian living. When it comes right down to Loving one another, it is not an emotion. It's not that I need this pep rally fire to keep me going. Now, look, I'm going to have a pastoral moment with you here. One of my fears for American Christianity is that churches have become pep rallies. And so there's an entertainment factor that's through the roof. And then there's an aspect on top of that to where there needs to be this constant, oh, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. There's going to be good. And, and everybody's constantly having to be fired up. And as long as the emotion is there, they continue to serve the Lord. But when the emotion begins to die down, they stop serving the Lord. The key to a strong, faithful Christian life 
is obedience. Yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Yielding to the teaching of God's word. But obedience now comes in conflict with my will. And my will gets in the way of my obedience. Because so often, I don't want to do it. Look, it's why we don't eat healthy. Because kale tastes like my shoe. I mean, it's terrible. You don't want to have to live on that. Well, you go, I know it's healthy for me. Yeah, but it tastes terrible. Kenny Baldwin, the preacher, said, look, you're going to be the healthiest person in the morgue one day. And that's the reality. I look at it and go, if I have to eat kale all of my life, I'd rather die. I don't want to eat that stuff. I guarantee you it's not going to be in heaven. That stuff's terrible. We don't eat healthy even though we know it's healthy. Why? Because I don't want to have to taste that stuff. Our obedience to what we know is right is hindered by our desires and our emotions. When it comes to life in Christ, that is equally true. And and my flesh is so strong, and I want to do, and I want to, and I want to. And my spirit is weak. But true Christianity is saying, I don't care what my flesh wants. I've got to do what I know to be right. And a decision that I'm going to obey, regardless of how I feel, is a sign of maturity, period, And it's absolutely a sign of spiritual maturity. So to say that I'm commanded to owe no man anything but to love them. And love is the fulfilling of the law. So therefore I have no obligation to anyone but to show love to them and to do what's right by them. That's easy to understand that that's what I'm supposed to do. But it's hard to do. Because in trying to do it. My desires get in the way. My wants get in the way. I feel like I get taken advantage of. I feel like at that point, I don't get to express myself the way that I want. Isn't it amazing how now modern education is saying, hey, take kids and let them express themselves however they want. Don't express yourself however you want in my house. That don't work here. You can express yourself the way I want you to express yourself. And the Lord says, look, you need to express yourself in love. Love is the key To all godly obedience. You can't have that constant obedience. If there's not love underlying that obedience. So Paul begins to write. And he says look. In love there is the fulfilling of the law. In love there is no murder. You don't kill somebody if you're showing love towards them. You don't commit adultery either on your spouse or with somebody else's spouse. If There's love involved in this. You don't lie about somebody if there's love involved in it. So love is this key fundamental basis that as I show love, it will naturally lead me to do right by someone. But when I'm going through it, my emotion gets involved in it. And when my emotion gets involved in it, it clouds my ability to think through it. So as Christians, one of the things that we need in America is as Christians to stand up and say, I'm not going to make this decision based on the emotion of the decision. Now, I believe that God gave us emotion and that emotion can be a powerful tool for his glory. But if I make my decisions based on feelings and they don't match what scripture teaches, then I'm out of love and I'm out of obedience. But I have to walk in that love and in that obedience. And so therefore I take that in that moment when I'm at a struggling point. 
and I make a decision that I'm going to do what's right. Love is doing what's right. Now, this is where it gets to be a challenge. If love is doing what's right, can I love and do what's wrong? That's a hard thing. Have you ever done wrong by someone that you absolutely, truly, without a shadow of a doubt, love that person? Only if you've ever been around them. Yes. Yes, you have. There are times when I do wrong as a father. There are times when I do wrong as a husband. And it doesn't mean that I don't love. But it may well mean that I'm not acting in love. But if I go through my life and I'm doing wrong by someone, that's not love. This verse is often used at teen camps and it's used among teenagers to help teenagers understand. Look, if you're going to do something immoral, you can't call that love because love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is doing what's right. So to do something wrong and to say that it's love is a contradiction. Well, there's absolutely truth to that. But the reason teenagers struggle with that so much is because moms and dads struggle with that so much. Moms and dads do what they want instead of doing what is right. And they rarely express proper love in a way that it ought to be expressed. So when we come back to this passage and we see, look, I am to owe no man anything but love. And love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. That I look and I say anything that I do to anyone that is not right by them is not love. And that gets difficult. Love's desire is for the well-being of mankind and for the well-pleasing of God. Love is for the well-being of mankind and for the well-pleasing of God. This is where love gets difficult. Because now... Love says that whatever I'm going to do must be right and it must be for the well-being of mankind and for the well-pleasing of God. So modern society takes love and says, well, love is love. No, it's not. Love is doing what's right. So because I have an emotion tied to something does not make it right. Right makes it right. Love makes the decision that for your well-being, I'm going to do what's right by you. So that the world today says love becomes acceptance. Love is not acceptance. Those are two totally different concepts. I don't have to accept wrong to love someone. What the world does... It's so funny to watch this unfold. Okay, so if you just watch in the political environment right now, uh, even my kids catch this, so that you see a commercial for one person, and then you see the commercial for their opponent. And it doesn't matter if it's presidential or if it's local or whatever it is. But, But you see these commercials. And this guy will make this statement, and then this person will take the same statement and show you why that statement's so evil and so bad. And then they'll take the statement and show why this person's so evil and so bad. And they'll take the same statement, and they will change the narrative by trying to point to something that is not there. The new Supreme Court Justice, uh, Amy Barrett, who's being appointed and going through the whole voting process. Isn't it funny how the whole debate has come about Obamacare? This is about getting somebody on the Supreme Court, and yet they have changed and framed the narrative to make this all about 
health insurance. You're going, health insurance and Supreme Court nomination, these are not the same thing. But they have framed the narrative that way. Why? Because it draws emotions into the decision. In our Christian lives, Satan works the exact same way. And society takes what is biblical and tries to change the narrative of it. So that we say we are to love every single person and to know, owe no man anything, not to do any ill by them, but to show them love. And then the world says, oh, okay, well, to show them love means you can't condemn them. You can't say what they're doing is wrong. Well, that's not true. In fact, the people who love me most in my life are the ones who are the most willing to tell me when I'm doing something that's hurtful to myself. And that doesn't make it easy for them. Because if love is for my well-being, then love is the ability to come to me and say, you know what, what you're doing here is hurting, and you fill in the blank. It doesn't work ill. Now, can we take someone who is doing something wrong and not come to them with a loving heart and attitude trying to correct the wrong and do more harm than good? Absolutely. Can we come to them and love, trying to help them with a situation for their well-being, and they not receive it? Yes, absolutely that's true. But it doesn't mean that I don't do what's right because of the way that they will receive it. Oftentimes, we come with a heart that says, I love you and I want to help you with this, but we come in the wrong attitude and we do more harm than good. So there is grace, there is a leading of the Holy Spirit that has to be involved in this. But without a doubt, if I come to every single person that I know in my life, and I come to them with this attitude, that I owe you love, there is a debt that I have to you. Now think of the debt that Paul had when he came in contact with any Christian. He may not have that Christian directly, but he may well have persecuted somebody that they knew or somebody that was close to them. Regardless, he had persecuted the way of life that they had accepted and he had a debt that involved seeing people put to death because of the belief that this individual has. And so when he comes to them now sharing that belief, there is a legitimate fire inside of him of a debt that he owes. That's a weight. You know, one of the problems with any type of financial debt is it changes the dynamic of the relationship. And there now becomes a person in a position of power and authority, and there becomes a submissive person who owes. And in that new relationship, there is a dynamic that is different because of that debt. It's why it's so hard if you ever borrow money from somebody in your family, because the dynamic dramatically changes. Paul said, I come recognizing my debt of love and that everyone is more important to me and is over me because I owe them. We don't like to come that way. We don't want to come with somebody over us. But when we recognize I owe them love for their well-being, love for the Lord accomplishes what fear of the law could never achieve. Verses 1 through 7, be subject to those that are of a higher power. Well, God is ultimately a higher power. So be subject to them. But 
in the law, I can live under the law with a fear of punishment, a fear of judgment, and that fear can bring me into a place of obedience. But love supersedes that. Love keeps me at a place to where it is far more important to me than that. Now, I, I use this often, but please bear with me. If you go about and you're driving and, and there is a speed limit, you will tend to supersede the speed limit as you deem reasonable in your mind. Most, most people live in that world. When you see a police officer, there comes fear of judgment. And so you slow down in light of the fact that there could be judgment for that individual. Now, if you have a vehicle that you value greatly, or you're driving someone else's vehicle that has value above your means, when you're in that vehicle, you treat that vehicle differently because of the love that you have for that vehicle, because you don't drive fast because you don't want to damage the vehicle that you are in. So... If you borrow somebody's car and that person is meticulous, doesn't it make you nervous to drive their car? I don't like to drive someone else's car because it, 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 they're just, my dad-in-law got a, a relatively new vehicle. It was new, but I don't know how new it was when I drove it. And he said, hey, drive it to town. I, I don't really want to drive it to town. I drove it down. I have never hit a deer in my life. I, I, I never have so far, and, and I don't want to, okay? So I, I've never hit a deer so far. I'm not kidding you. We go down, Kara and I do go down to town. We're coming back and three deer run smack out in front of us when I'm driving his car. I'm like, will you please just let me drive my truck so if I hit a deer, I don't feel bad about it. You know, I don't want to mess up someone else's vehicle. When you're in a situation to where something has greater value, you take care of it differently, not because of the fear of what's going on, but Go get a rental car. And you get a rental car and you drive it like you stole it, man. I mean, you just, you don't care. It's a rental car. It's not yours. It's going back to the dealership. That's why. Where do you never buy a used car? From the rental car company. Because everybody drives them like they stole them, all right? So they're always mistreated because nobody cares about that car. When I go through my life, too often, my relationships become more like drive it like I stole it kind of idea. Be rough, be shoddy, be, be belligerent. It doesn't matter because whatever that encounter is, it's going to be short-lived and I'm going to move on. Paul said, no, look, you have a debt of love that you owe to every single person you come into contact with. And so treat them with the value that they deserve that you don't want to mess up that relationship. Do for them what is good for them. Treat them in a way that will help them. Show love to them because when you have built whatever time you spend with them on love, everything else takes care of itself. But we struggle to do it. We get excited. We know it's true. We can leave a message like this and go out. But yet we know that at the end, it's difficult to stand and do what's right. Our love has to be different. And our love should stand out from the world's love in order for others to see we are his disciples. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. 
put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So that my love has to be fervent. It has to be on fire for me. And it has to be such that I recognize this debt that I owe to mankind. And I have to pay this debt. And I have to show this love. And it's not something that I can hide. I have to put on holiness. I have to be different. Because I've got to show this love. Even at the point to where they may not understand it. Because I've got to do what's right for them. Nowadays, debt is almost a hard comparison in this scenario. Because we live where there are now governmental ways to get out of debt. And and there will be people who will take on unnecessary risk financially. They will bring about great debt under their name. Because they know ultimately they could go in, they can file some paperwork. And they can walk away having declared bankruptcy. But in the matter of really days... They can then go and begin to get credit again. And they can go and live in indebtedness again. So because of the ability to use governmental laws to consolidate debts, to cancel debts, people don't live under the weight of their indebtedness. In Bible days, if you couldn't pay your debt, you were sold as a slave, and then you had to work off that debt the rest of your life. And it may well be that not just you, but your wife and your children were sold off to pay your debt. Now when you owe a debt and someone comes to collect that debt, there is a different urgency to make sure that debt gets paid. We don't have that same urgency. Now, if you have character and you have been taught and you have had parents who have instilled in you that you pay what you owe... When a bill comes due, if you don't have the money for that bill, there is an urgency about trying to figure out how to pay that bill. You don't want to live in that indebtedness. I have a debt of love that should burn as if my life depends on it. But here's one of the great truths of my debt of love. The debt of love is one that will always owe. We will never pay off, but we will always have the resources to pay. Because of Christ, I will always have a a debt of love that I owe to everyone. A urgent debt of love that I must fervently work to pay. But that debt will never get paid off. There's nothing better than getting a debt paid off. In fact, we were talking about it before the service. Man, I can't wait till the building's paid off. You know, I, I just, I love to get that debt gone, done, paid for. And my debt of love will never be paid off. But here's the miraculous thing about it. Though I will always owe that debt, because of the love of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit's working inside of me, I will always have the resources to pay that debt off. So every time that debt of love comes in any relationship, 
I will have the resources to pay that debt. And then the next time it comes up, I will pay it again. And the next time, and the next time you go, well, how often does that come up? All the time, every day. But I will always have the resources to pay it. Peggy Koval was a young lady whose parents were missionaries to the Philippines. They had given their life to helping reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ back in the early 1900s. They were there in the Philippines and they were doing a great work. And while they were there, tensions began to rise between the Philippines and Japan. World War II has gotten started and Japan has begun to invade. While her parents were there in the Philippines, the Japanese military forces invaded and actually killed her parents because of their missionary work in the Philippines. Peggy was in the States at the time. The weight of that moment was obviously very difficult for her. It was not long after that until the events of Pearl Harbor took place in December. And as the planes flew in and attacked, 2,400 American lives were lost at Pearl Harbor that day. The commander of the squadron of airplanes that attacked was, his last name was Fachita. Commander Fachita came in, he led the group, they attacked Pearl Harbor, and he made it out safely and went back to Japan. He was a hero in Japan for leading the attack on the U.S. The U.S. got involved in the war, and we looked at it some this morning. As the war would unfold over the next few years, Commander Fuchida was just seen throughout Japan as a man who was of great influence, great power, just a true hero in the country, and was used often to rally people to encourage them in the war effort. As the war ended, and then there began to be trials for those who had been involved in committing crimes of war during that time, many against the Doolittle Raiders, as we heard this morning, uh, Vachita thought that these trials were a sham. He felt like the American court system was just putting on a show and that in doing this, they were doing it just to make the Japanese look bad and that American forces had treated the Japanese just like Japanese forces had treated the Americans who were prisoners of war. So he began to search out those that had been prisoners of war, Japanese soldiers who had been prisoners of war. And, and he began to ask them questions. Well, he came across a man that he had known from years before who had become a prisoner of war in the United States. As he began to speak to this man, he asked him what the conditions were like in his war camp. And he began to tell them of Peggy Koval. Peggy Koval's parents had been killed by the Japanese in the war. But she knew her parents believed clearly what scripture taught that you were to love your enemies. And she knew that she had a responsibility to show a love to her enemies that had perhaps even had a part in the death of her parents. So Peggy Koval began going to the camp where they were at. And she began to minister to those prisoners of war throughout the camp. She would bring them food. She would help get letters back to their family. She would just take time day in and day out to minister and serve the prisoners of war. When this man who had been captive gave report of the kindness that Peggy Koval had shown to him and to all the other men. And it got back to Commander Fachita. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't understand why anyone would do that. He began to ask questions. He began to learn about her faith in Christ. Later, he would actually read the track by Jacob DeShazer about his time as a prisoner of war and how he had forgiven people. Commander Fachita accepted Christ as his savior. He met Jacob DeShazer 
And over the years that would follow, as they would travel around, there would be hundreds of people who would come to hear DeShazer give the gospel of Jesus Christ. There would be thousands who would come to hear Commander Fachita. And as he went throughout the nation, giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and saw thousands upon thousands saved, it was all because there was a young lady who said, I have a debt of love that I owe. And she showed that love in such a way that those who were outside of the faith said that love's not natural. You, you can't love like that as a person. And her love superseded anything he had ever seen. Now, just a, a side thought on that for a moment. As an American, when you think about an attack like that on our country, it can be easy to go, I don't know that I could ever forgive someone who did that. If you do believe that way, then what has happened is you have put your Americanism before your Christianity. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that that's an easy thing. The thought of loving Osama bin Laden is the closest thing in my lifetime that I can put to this. I, I can't imagine loving him. I can't imagine being good to him. But if I can't come to a place to where I can show love to that person, then essentially my Americanism is stronger than my Christianity. And I've got to switch that. My love for Christ constrains me to have no debt but to love every individual. And then you look there at verse 11. And that knowing the time that now is at high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we, when we believe. The time of the Lord's coming is ever closer. And I have to recognize that I will stand accountable before the Lord for the debt of love that I owe. Paul knew his debt was great. Do we recognize how great our debt is? Submission to the law, verses 1 through 7, and walking in love, verses 8 through 10, are easier in light of the Lord's return. When I know and I live knowing that I have to awake out of sleep, the day is closer than it has ever been, then I have to live in light of that. And I can't pretend that loving people is not important. I can't pretend that doing right by people is not important. Because I'm going to stand accountable before the Lord one day. There's no doubt about it. The Lord is coming and I will stand before him. Can you imagine for someone like Jacob DeShazer, as we looked at this morning, Peggy Coble, when they stand before the Lord and there are others around them who have trusted in Christ and who are standing there at the judgment seat of Christ because simply they overcame a bitterness and overcame a bias to show pure love and the difference it made in thousands of lives. And when they stand there and they hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I look at that and I go, man, the level of love there. And I have a hard time forgiving the person who was obnoxious to me. 
I have a hard time showing love to someone who has never done anything wrong to me except maybe they were a little too slow at the counter when I came up. And I am so guilty of living a life that does not walk daily in the understanding that I owe love. It is a debt I have to pay. No believer, when he sees Christ, will believe that he has justly paid his debt of love. It's not like I'm going to get to heaven and go, oh, you know what? I surely showed and paid my debt of love. I won't even be close. And yet, when I stand before heaven, and I can know in my heart that I at least tried, that I at least grew in that area. But if I stand there before God, that day is closer than it has ever been. And I stand before God and I never even tried. And there are countless souls that are spending eternity in hell because I didn't care, because I didn't show enough love. What an indictment that is. And it's an indictment for all of us. We have become so accustomed to living life on the normal that we have defined that there is not an urgency that we fervently seek to pay this debt as if our freedom depended on it. But the cause of Christ in the growing of the kingdom of God on this earth depends on whether or not I show the love that I owe. From the time I was a child, I was taught the principle of paying off your debts. And it was ingrained in me, and it was taught me, and it was pushed into me so that I hate owing anybody anything. Because I'm afraid I'll forget to pay it. And then the person won't say anything to me. But when it comes to my love that I owe, it is a debt that is there. And too often I equally forget to pay it. And the cost is actually far greater. Are we willing to stand and to do what is right regardless because we have a debt of love let's pray